Good afternoon, everyone. Good. I, I, you can hear me? Yeah. The question will be, can you understand me with my, with my English accent? So it's great to be here. I love being able to travel um, so many miles from my homeland in the UK. It's, I Googled it. It's nearly 6,000 miles from where I lived to here. And yet you come all that way and you still meet people who love Jesus. We're united together by the gospel. We are on mission together in our family of churches, and it's a sweet thing. So thank you for having me, a complete and utter stranger. Uh, but God's word is wonderful, and I want to invite you, if you would, to please turn to Psalm 130. Psalm 130. I'm going to start my clock here. So in England, we're allowed to preach for four and a half hours. <laughs> That's not true. If you go over about 20 minutes, you get stuff thrown at you. So I'll start my clock here, and then I'll hopefully acclimatize to the time. Uh, Ron mentioned I, I'm married to Claire. We've been married 23 years. We have six children. Uh, I've got triplet sons who are 19, and then a daughter who's 17, another girl who's 14, and a son who will be 10 next week. My wife is much smarter than me. She did a psychology degree, and my, one of my 19-year-old sons is just about to start college in Pennsylvania, and he's doing a psychology degree as well. And he reads a lot of books and, uh, on psychology. It's, it's one of the things that he's really interested in. And uh, recently I saw him, uh, some, in one of his psychology books, they, they, they were talking about the inkblot test. Does anybody know what the inkblot test is? You've heard of this, perhaps. It's where psychologists, they show you pictures uh, of like ink splots, and then they ask you what you see in them, and then they basically profile you and, and, and work out what you're like, what your personality is, whether you're crazy or not, uh, on, the, on the answers that you, you give to these ink blots. And so they hold up a picture and someone will say, oh, it's a, it's a butterfly. Another person will say, well, I see a cloud. Someone else will say, well, it's definitely a blood stain from a gunshot. And, you know, and then people, they, and then they go, oh, okay. And so they work out whether you have all your marbles or whether you're a sandwich short of a picnic. And uh, that, that, that means crazy in England. Ah, does that what it, is that what it means here? You've never heard it before. Right, okay. <laughs> uh, so as Christians, we don't necessarily do inkblot tests, but there are certain things that we hear, words that we come across, that uh, when someone says them to us, they conjure up images and pictures in our minds. One of those words is forgiveness. Okay? So if I would say, this is not audience participation, but you can think about this in your own head. If I said forgiveness to you, what comes into your mind? And I'm sure if we went from this side of the room to this side of the room, we would find a multitude of different answers like you would on an inkblot test. It can mean different things to different people based on our background, our history, the experiences that we've had, the things that we've done in life or, or things that have been done to us, the people that we know. Um, and forgiveness is one of those words that conjures up different ideas. It's one thing to forgive someone who's late for a meeting it, it, or you know, opens their car and, and smashes into your car door in a parking lot it's another thing to forgive someone who has seriously and perhaps repeatedly or profoundly or deeply hurt you in some way. But forgiveness, 
no matter what we might, what range of answers we might have this afternoon, forgiveness is central to our experience as Christians. It's, it's central to our relationship with God and with one another. And so I think it's really important for us to have an idea, a, a, a good collective general consensus on what forgiveness is, what, how God views forgiveness, what his perspective on forgiveness is, so that we might learn from that and understand that and all be on the same page so that we understand how God views it and then we can also understand how we're to forgive one another. Now, forgiveness is a topic that is wide and vast and I don't expect to do uh, anything that's exhaustive this afternoon, but what I would like to do is just to peel back a few layers to look at the forgiveness of God towards us as sinners. And Psalm 130 provides us with some really great insights wise counsel, and faith-building encouragement. So why don't we read God's word together? A song of ascents. And that just means that this was part of a collection of psalms that pilgrim Jews going up to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover or the various feast days, they would sing these songs in anticipation of going up to worship God. This is what the psalmist writes. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, if you should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope my soul waits for the Lord, more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. Oh Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Well, in verses 1 and 2, we find the psalmist in a situation that maybe some of us can identify with. He says he is down in the depths. In Britain, we would say he was down in the dumps. It's a, it's a kind of a, it's a place where you just feel really low, okay? And the kind of image that you should kind of have in your mind as you read verses 1 and 2 is uh, a disaster at sea movie. Now, we live in movie land up here, I guess. And so you, you probably have all seen disaster at sea movies. You know, someone's trapped in a cave, someone's trapped on a boat that's sunk, someone's trapped on a submarine, those kind of things. And usually at, at some point during the movie, in, in one of the, uh, the scenes, the hero and his or her companions are trapped in this situation and the sea level is rising and it's getting higher and higher and higher and it's creeping up their bodies and the waist and then their chest and then it gets up to their neck and then they sort of turn in their heads as the gap between the top of the wherever they're trapped and the, the water level rises and rises and rises and they're just, they're panicking and they think they're about to die. And then something miraculous happens usually. That's the kind of image here that the psalmist, I think, is, is trying to conjure up when he says he feels down in the depths. The word depths there was always used in the Old Testament to describe the depths of the sea. 
and the sea was a place of danger, uh, a, day, a place of chaos, a place of uh, destruction and death. It, it's not like the beach where you go for surfing and sandcastles and ice cream and fun. It's, so, for instance, in the Old Testament, in the book of Daniel, Daniel sees a vision of four monsters, evil monsters, and they come out of the sea. Or in the book of Revelation, John sees the beast emerging from the sea. In that culture, in that context that the Bible was written into in its original audience, they viewed the sea as a place of danger. And so here, the psalmist is communicating to us and he's expressing his, his, uh, his distress and his despair that he feels in a place of great danger, a, a place of almost death. He feels like he's, he's, he's out at sea. And he can't see the bottom, and he can't touch the bottom, and he doesn't know what's swimming around him, and he doesn't know if, if the next wave is going to like pile over him, and he's going to drown. It's that kind of image that you get. And just the repetition of verses 1 and 2 where he's crying out for mercy, it's just, it's a, it's a biblical way of kind of heightening the intensity and the urgency of what he feels as he repeats himself. That, that heightens the urgency. And he recognizes if someone doesn't throw him a lifeline, he's dead. He's in trouble. Now, hopefully, if you're tracking with me, the first question that you will ask is, why? Why does he feel this way? Why does he feel like he's about to drown? Why does he feel like the depths are about to crash over him and swallow him up and overwhelm him? Well, if you read the book of Psalms, you will find Psalms where the psalmist expresses his concerns and his anxieties and, and fears about what's going on around him in the world. There are also Psalms where the psalmist expresses uh, his concern and his fears over the physical pain that he's in or the illness or sickness that has afflicted him. Or in some cases, he's, he's fearful of it, uh, the potential of dying, an impending death. Some psalms communicate that he is fearful of the threats or opposition or persecution that he's experiencing right then. But none of those we find in our text this afternoon. There are certainly psalms where they, all those things are the case, but that's not the cause of the psalmist's distress in Psalm 130. There's something different going on. And you see the answer to what is happening in verse 3 when he asks this kind of rhetorical question which is so obvious in its answer that it doesn't need to be answered. And so he says, here's what's driving his, his despair. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? So he's basically saying to, to the Lord, if you got out your ledger, and you counted all the things that I've done that I shouldn't have done, and if you counted up all the things that I haven't done that I should have done, and if you numbered down and checked off all of the occurrences of my sins, my lust, my anger, my greed, my deceit, my pride, my lying, and if you kept a note of all the shameful wrongdoings, the words that I've spoken, the thoughts that I've thought, the actions that I've acted, the motives and attitudes with which I've done them, if you recounted them all and posted them for everybody to see, man, I would be in trouble. I, I would be dead. What hope would I have 
of coming before you? What hope would I have of standing in your presence? What hope would I have of being able to worship you and draw near to you because you're a holy God? And one thing would cancel me from your presence, let alone the list of things that I've done. And so perhaps the psalmist is remembering kind of like a back catalog of sins, small perhaps things that he has done that kind of have a cumulative effect on his soul and feel like they're weighing him down. Or perhaps it could be one particular event or one particular episode in his life that torments him and haunts him at night. No, we don't really know, but we do know that the cause of his distress is his sin before a holy God. And he's so distressed that he feels at the point of death. What can a holy God have to do with a sinful person like me? As he's on his way up to Jerusalem, this is a song of ascent. So as he's on his way up, surrounded by God's people, going up to the temple to worship God, this is in his mind. What can you have to do with me? I'm a sinner. You're a holy God. The two things, they don't go together. If I was to come into your presence, I should be rightly killed. And he's in anguish and he's in torment because he's aware that, yes, despair does come from temporal problems and external trials and difficulties and illness and relational breakdowns and financial hardships and uh, all kind of manner of diseases and sickness. But the greatest problem that he is aware of in this moment is his sin and the consequences of those sins before a holy God. But then, if you notice, the psalm doesn't finish there. Because if you, go, if you fast forward to verses 7 and 8, it's like you're reading a completely different psalm. Listen to these words. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. For the Lord, there's steadf- with the Lord, there's steadfast love and there's plentiful redemption. And God himself is going to redeem us from all of our iniquities. And you think, like, did the Bible editor cut and paste them in the wrong place? You know, that's not how the psalm should end, but it does. And so we've got to ask the question, why? What has brought about this change? What has brought about a transformation from despair and lament to faith and hope and joy? Well, sometimes I, I wonder if the psalmist is like me. You know, when I am confronted, and maybe this will identify and resonate with some of you, when I am aware of my guilt and sin before a holy God, there's a number of different strategies I have to deal with it, okay? Here's a bunch of strategies that didn't take me very long to come up with this list, right? But here's, uh, it's not exhaustive either, but here's some things that I do regularly when I'm confronted with my sin. I deny it. No, I didn't do that. No, it's got to be some other British guy. No, it wasn't me. Or I excuse it. I say, that was Eric's fault. He made me do it. Or I redefine it. And I say, my kids don't make me angry. No. Notice that. That's two in one there. They just make me frustrated. Or I ignore it. Say, what, what, just, what just happened here? No. Why are you offended? I don't know. Something happened. And we ignore it. Or we lie about it. We say, no, you don't understand. It wasn't quite like that. Or we justify it. Or we try and cover it over. Or we blame it for, I blame it on other people. 
You know, I wouldn't have said those words if she hadn't thrown the saucepan at me. Or we can, you know, when we're confronted with our guilt, if you're like me, I, I'd like to try and escape my guilt. So I, I, rather than deal with my sin properly, I like to put the TV on and watch Netflix. Or I'll surf the web for a few moments. Or I'll read uh, <coughs> the sports pages of the newspaper. Or I'll play video games with my kids. Or maybe I'll go to the fridge and get out, or the freezer and get out the ice cream. And I'll drown my guilt in indulgence. Or I'll eat chocolate. Or some people turn to alcohol or drugs. Sometimes we externalize our guilt and we just say, no, 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 I'm the victim. Or I did this because of her or him. It's not my fault. If, if you understood me and my past. Sometimes we wallow in our guilt. In, in self-pity, we kind of, we're determined to beat ourselves up, to be better people. So we, we say, I'm going to set my alarm for 4 a.m. in the morning and I'm going to go to the gym for three hours. And then I'm going to do a two-hour quiet time. And then I'm going to work really hard and I'm going to put in the extra hours. And then I'm going to make it to care group early. And then I'm going to stay right till the end. And I'm going to just do all of these wonderful things. And then hopefully tomorrow I'll wake up and God will be pleased with me. I'm guilty of a multitude of those things. When my guilty conscience condemns me, when the whispering lies of Satan enter into my ears and my mind, I try all sorts of ways to deal with my sin and guilt. And yet, at the end of all of those things, when I try them, I still don't have any hope or confidence or assurance. Because they don't provide ultimate Satisfaction, And what we find the psalmist is doing here in verses 3 and 4 is, is what we should do. The proper response to our sin and guilt. For he doesn't look inward. He doesn't wallow in self-pity. Neither does he look outwardly to help, you know, just going to hang with my friends. Just do this, you know, reassure me, tell me I'm a good person. And he looks upward to God. He looks upward for divine help. In verse 4, he utters these words with one of the great buts of the Bible. But with you, there's forgiveness that you may be feared. Oh, if you kept a record of all my sins, if you kept a record of all my wrongdoings, if you kept a record of all the things where I have failed, I am in serious, eternal trouble. But with you, there's forgiveness. He recognizes that the only person that can throw him a lifeline in his despair and distress at his sin is God himself. That God is the one whose prerogative it is, his disposition to forgive sin. It is God who has the authority and the power of pardon. That forgiveness is something that God owns and God is able to distribute as he sees fit. And he is a God who grants forgiveness so that the people like the psalmist, so that people like you and me might draw near to him. So the psalmist sees God is a holy God, but he's also a forgiving God. He grants forgiveness so that men and women like you and me might fear him. Might, that, that, that's a word that, that means like reverential awe, that we might draw near to him in worship and communion and fellowship with him. Now, there's three things that I just want to kind of draw your attention to from verses 4 and 5 and 6 that speak of God's forgiveness towards us. 
Because it's one thing to say forgiveness, but going back to our ink blot test, we can all have different ideas about what that means. So let's get God's idea on it. So we're all reading off the same page. Three, three observations about forgiveness. First one is this, that God's forgiveness is comprehensive. Comprehensive. If you read verse 4 again, you see this, but with you there is forgiveness. It doesn't say there's forgiveness for this sin and that sin, but not for this one or that one. No, it says there is forgiveness. In fact, in the Hebrew, it's even stronger because it's, it basically says, with you, the forgiveness. That God is the one who holds the forgiveness. It's like it's trying to be definitive. There is a forgiveness that God has. It's the forgiveness that we need. It's a forgiveness that sets no limits. It's a forgiveness that forgives anything and everything and anyone and everyone and any time and every time. It's a forgiveness that is sufficient. It's a forgiveness that doesn't work according to quotas. It's not like God gets to the end of the week on the Friday and he says, man, um, Eric, I can't forgive you today because I've used up all my forgiveness on, on, uh, on Ron. You know, it was a tough week for him. It's all gone. So you're stuck. Come back on Monday morning, see if I got some more for you. No, God's forgiveness is comprehensive. And it doesn't matter whether you are struggling with that kind of, uh, what I said earlier, the, the, the kind of the small or little sins, the cumulative effect of things that you have done maybe over a long period of time, besetting sins that have weighed you down that you just can't shake off, the sin that so easily entangles and you just feel the weight of it slowly crushing your soul. He can comprehensively forgive all of those. And at the same time, if it's one particular episode or event that haunts you from your past, he can forgive those too. His forgiveness is comprehensive. Whoever you are, whatever you have done, I want you to go away today knowing that God can forgive you. There are no depths so deep that we reach that we cannot cry out to mercy, uh, to God for mercy. And the forgiveness that we're talking about is not a kind of a sweep the sins under the carpet and hope no one notices the bump. Like a somehow a, a pretend forgiveness that maybe one day someone will trip over that bump and it'll all just come out in public again. No, when God says he forgives us, he removes our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. There is a comprehensive forgiveness that is full and true and free. There's no double jeopardy with God. It's not like, oh, I'll tell them, this is a good prank. Oh, yeah, you're forgiven. And then like on, when they die on their deathbed, I'm going to wham them again. It doesn't work like that. God's forgiveness is comprehensive. It's available for every sin and our many sins. Second observation I like to make is that God's forgiveness is always available. So not only is it comprehensive, but it's always available. If you read verse 4 again, you see that our English Bibles put it in the present tense. With you there is forgiveness. There is forgiveness. The Hebrew, again, makes it even stronger. It literally says, with you, the forgiveness. There's no tense to it. It just says, God has forgiveness available. So it means that your forgiveness is not just confined to past sins that you have done. 
nor is it that it, it describes forgiveness is just going to come in the future. But for now, you just got to cross your fingers and hope. No, there is forgiveness today. It's available today. All our sins past are included. All the things that we have yet to do will be included. But there is forgiveness that is available today at this very moment. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, whenever you've done it, there's forgiveness available to all of us. And it's not a once in a blue moon uh, limited edition offer. It's always available. There's no used by date on it. It's freely available to all who will cry out to God for help. You know, God is as forgiving today, 13th of August, 2023, as he was when the psalmist wrote this. He hasn't changed. With God, there is forgiveness. And it's not designed to be a gradual process. It's instantaneous and now. So it's not like when you've conquered that sin, God will forgive you. Or when you're doing better, God will forgive you. Or when you get to heaven, God will forgive you. Or when the kids behave, then he'll forgive you. Or when you feel closer to God, and then he'll forgive you. Or when you get your act together, then he'll forgive you. No. It's always available. And it's available right now to each and every one of us. You could have walked in the door. I don't know who you are, so I don't know whether this applies to you. But you might be here this afternoon and you might not be a Christian. You might know nothing about the Bible. You might be completely ignorant about theology. And that's fine. We just I know people here are just grateful that you came in off the street. But what I would love you to go away knowing is this. That where with God there is forgiveness of sins for those who cry out to him. You don't need to know your Bibles to understand that. You just need to know that that's a possibility. If you cry out to God for mercy, he can forgive you of anything and everything that you have done. Oh, but there must be a catch, a cost. Well, no. But it does have to be received by faith. And that's the third observation I'd like to make about forgiveness this afternoon. Forgiveness, God's forgiveness is comprehensive and it's always available, but it's only, it can only be accessed and received by faith. In, so, in verses 5 and 6, we get this interesting little kind of insertion of a few verses that don't really necessarily make a lot of sense with what's gone before and after. So he cries out to God for mercy in verses 1 and 2. Then he says, God, you are holy and I'm a sinner. But you're a forgiving God. Then in verses 7 and 8, he rejoices. But verses 5 and 6, he says, I will wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And you could think, well, hang on a minute. Didn't he just say that forgiveness is available now? And now this verse is telling me to wait? What's going on? I don't, that doesn't make any sense. But here in verses 5 and 6, the waiting is not just like he's standing in line, fingers crossed, hoping that God might act. No, the waiting is an expression of faith. Look again at what it says in verses 5 and 6. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning. More than watchman for the morning. And there's that Hebrew poetry again to raise and heighten the urgency He's, he's calling us to wait. Now, um, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, 
in uh, Mediterranean Europe, where I've had the privilege of going on, on holiday, as we say, or you say vacation, uh, a few times with my family, there are a number of hills and hill towns uh, on, uh, you know, the uh, eastern coast of Spain or southern France that you can visit that are surrounded by great big walls, okay? And there's like one gate in and one gate out. Uh, and these are medieval towns on the side of hills, uh, and they have these great big walls to protect the people that live there. And there would usually be like a tower or a turret or something where they would station a watchman, okay? And this, is, this happened in biblical times as well. Uh, but... I wasn't there when it happened, and I have been to medieval uh, Mediterranean Europe. So what would happen is you, you see these towers, and then uh, what you read in history, or you do the tour of the town, and they tell you there was a watchman who was stationed on the tower, and at night the gates would close, and the watchman's job, his responsibility, was to look out into the darkness to make sure that no one was attacking the city, to protect the city from uh, enemy forces that might come and, and lay siege to that particular town. And so a watchman would stand on the wall or the tower of the city, and he would look out into the black, into the darkness, looking out onto the horizon to, to, to peer and see and look and hope that nobody was attacking them. And here the psalmist says, I'm like a watchman at night who's keeping watch, who's vigilant, who's diligent, who's looking out, whose eyes are fixed, who's checking, who's watching, who's looking. That's the kind of, it's an expression of faith here. That illustration he's using to express his faith in God, who is a, a holy God and a forgiving God. Now, perhaps in Southern California and L.A., a watchman sounds a bit weird, but maybe um, Maybe a, a more modern-day illustration would be uh, American football. Anybody here a sports fan? Yeah? What's the local team here? Okay, so it's a college team. All right, so Amer American football. I mean, I, I'm from England. We have proper football where you actually have to use your feet. Uh, <clears throat> so I don't really understand American football, but I've watched it uh, because the Philadelphia Eagles were in the Super Bowl. And so you just, when in Rome, you do as the Romans. You just, if you're in Philadelphia, you just become an Eagles fan, even if you don't understand anything that's happening. But what, what I have observed is that they, during the plays, they line up on the line of scrimmage, and there's defensive men and offensive men and wide receivers, and they're all waiting for the, the quarterback to shout for the ball, and then organized chaos takes place. And you see these guys, these big hulking guys, and they're all crouched down, and they're just waiting, and they're ready to go. And they're just waiting for the guy to shout, let's go, or whatever he says. And, you know, they're on their toes, <laughs> and they're waiting. You know, if the psalmist was writing today in, in modern language, that's the kind of image I think he would be like a, a lineman ready to go. Be on your toes, be ready, get ready, watch, listen, eager. If you don't like sports, here's, a, here's another way the psalmist might have written it. Who likes the, uh, we call it the Great British Bake Off, but I think it's the British Baking Show. Yeah, okay, some of you are looking at me like I'm foreign, and that's because I am. Uh, but the, the Great British Bake Off, the British Baking Show, you see them all, they mix up their cakes or their biscuits or their bread, and they get it in the pan, and then they put it in the oven. And, and the thing that always just makes me laugh is then the next thing they do is they do this. And they just sit there and they watch the oven. I think, 
it's not going to cook any quicker because you're watching it. But they watch it and then they open the door and then they go, no, it's not ready. And then like 20 seconds later, they're like, no, it's not ready. And they watch and they watch and they watch. I think the psalmist would have written something like that. Like, watch like a British baking show contestant. I watch the oven because I'm looking because I want to be ready in that moment. It's an exercise of faith. It's a God's forgiveness is, is received by faith as we wait, as we trust, as we watch, as we keep our eyes fixed on him. And he tells us what he's waiting and hoping in. Did you notice that in verse 5? My soul waits and in his word I hope. So he's not just hoping waiting in some ethereal kind of abstract way. No, he's putting his trust and his confidence on and in something. And it's in the word of the Lord, in the words of the Lord. So perhaps as he is going up to Jerusalem to the temple to worship God for Passover or for one of the other Old Testament feasts, and as they're singing these psalms together and as they're calling to mind the truths of who God is and what he's like, Perhaps he's thinking words like Exodus 34, where God meets Moses in the wilderness and proclaims his name to him. And he says, my name is the Lord, the Lord, God of mercy and grace, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and mercy, keeping steadfast love for generations, forgiving iniquities and transgressions and sins. In his word, I hope. Or perhaps he had something like, you don't have to turn there, but there's a chapter in Leviticus in the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 4, which is a very lengthy chapter about the kind of sacrifices and offerings that the Israelites had to make to God in order to be able to approach him. And you get these descriptions in Leviticus chapter 4 of what to do with the blood and what to do with the fat of the animal and what to do with the flesh of the animal and what to leave behind and what to give to people. But all the way through Leviticus chapter 4, as it tells you what to do with these different parts and these different sacrifices and these different sin offerings, you hear this refrain four times in one chapter. It's verse 20, 26, 31, 36. As you do this with the blood, and he will be forgiven. As you do this with the fat, and he will be forgiven. As you do this with the flesh of the animal, he will be forgiven. Maybe the psalmist had those words in his mind. As we go up to worship God, it requires sacrifice. It requires bloodshed, but we'll be forgiven. And in his word, I hope. Now, of course, the Old Testament sacrifices and the, the things that they did at the temple they taught the Old Testament Israelites that forgiveness was only possible through atonement and bloodshed. But we also know that the sacrifices were insufficient. And we know that because they just had to keep repeating them day after day, week after week, year after year. The priest wasn't allowed to sit down because his job was never done. These sacrifices were good, but they were insufficient to bring about lasting forgiveness but in God's unfolding plan he designed them to point to the one who would bring about eternal forgiveness 
If you have a Bible and you uh, still have it in front of you, just turn to Hebrews chapter 9 for me, if you would. Because in Hebrews chapter 9, we have echoes of Psalm 130. Whereas the Old Testament saints looked to the blood of bulls and goats to forgive them before a holy God, you and I have even more sure and certain and hope-imparting uh, hope because we don't just uh, trust in the words and the promises of God like Old Testament Israel did. We get to trust in the Word become flesh who fulfilled all the promises of God. Jesus. Remember what John said in John chapter 1 verse 29 about Jesus when he saw him coming down to be baptized? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now Hebrews chapter 9, we have a uh, description from the, the author of Hebrews telling us what Jesus accomplished and how he is the ultimate lamb who would once and for all take away the sins of the world and secure forgiveness and redemption for God's people. And so the writer of Hebrews uh, chapter 9, beginning in verse 11, he says, When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. Okay, so he's just saying Jesus has come as a high priest, and rather than... Uh, doing this all humanly speaking through the tabernacle on earth. He's doing it in a much greater way through a, a spiritual kind of way. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood, of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood. Thus securing an eternal redemption. And then the writer to the Hebrews continues, for if by the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. So basically, if blood and of bulls and goats and sheep and lambs and the sprinkling of ashes and doing all of this with the fat and the body parts can bring about a purification of sinners for a time, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will he purify our sinful consciences from dead works so that we might serve the living God, so that we might worship him, so that we might fear him? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, verse 15. Then flip down to verse 26. Where it says, he has appeared, speaking of Jesus, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, he's coming back a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are what? Who are eagerly waiting for him. Do you hear the echoes in Hebrews 9 of Psalm 130? Oh Lord, who could stand in your holy presence if you kept a record of wrongs? No one, but with you there is forgiveness. How? Because Jesus, Jesus has laid down his own life. 
He has shed his blood. He has died and has risen to a secure sinners and eternal redemption. And he will cleanse us more than any other sacrifice. His sacrifice is different on a, on a level or by degree to any previous sacrifice because it was a once for all sacrifice. And then in Hebrews 10, you find he goes on and he says, and then Jesus sat down because his work was done. What did he say at the cross, John 19? It is finished. And he's attained for us, secured for us an eternal redemption to save those who are eagerly waiting. All the hopes of the psalmist, all the hopes of, that you and I have for forgiveness of our sins lie on Jesus. His incarnation, his life, his death, his resurrection. He is our only hope. And all the temple sacrifices and all the, the things that they did that failed ultimately to accomplish Redemption, Jesus successfully fulfills, completely, perfectly, utterly. An eternal redemption. Now, if you've still got your Bibles in front of you, just flip back to Hebrews, uh, sorry, to Psalm 130, because we haven't even reached the climax of the psalm yet, as good as it's been so far. Because in verses 7 and 8, the psalmist, he reaches the pinnacle of what he wants to say to us when he, he basically, in verse 7 now, having reflected on his sinfulness and the holiness of God and the forgiveness of God, he now turns around, having exercised his own faith, and he says to those who are walking with him, who are pilgrims with him, People who, if we were there on that day, people like you and me, he turns to us and he says, Oh, Israel, oh, God's people, oh, Sovereign Grace Church of Pasadena, hope in God. Let's have hope in God. Let's rejoice for the Lord, with the Lord. There is steadfast love and with him there's plentiful redemption. And he himself, he will redeem Israel from all of our iniquities. He himself will undertake to save us from all of our sins. And he's done that in Christ. Hope in the Lord. See the company that God keeps. With him, he keeps the company of forgiveness. With him, there is steadfast love. With him, there is plentiful redemption. No matter who you are, what you've done done, wherever you've done it, how many times you've done it, if you cry out to God for mercy and exercise faith in his son, you will experience plentiful redemption. You will not get in by the skin of your teeth. You will not get in by the, your backside being on fire. Jesus gives plentiful, abundant redemption and forgiveness of sins. There is an inexhaustible storehouse of grace that is available to each one of us. And there's plenty to spare too, to tell others about. Plentiful redemption, I love that. And I think the psalmist is trying to create a contrast. I was down in the depths, I wanted to die because of my sin before our holy God. That's what I deserve, but with God, the God of forgiveness, there's plentiful redemption. Plentiful redemption. So let me just ask you a question, and I'll finish with this. Have you cried out to God for this mercy? Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian, and you've never heard this before. Talk to the person who brought you. Talk to someone you saw at the front. Talk to me. Talk to Ron. Talk to anybody who you think might be connected with this church, and ask them, because they would delight to tell you about the best news that you can hear. Jesus loves you, and he can forgive you of your sins.
And if you have been a Christian for a, a few years or many years, then take the words of Hebrews 9 and Psalm 130 and recognize Jesus has done it all, but let's, have, let's eagerly wait. He saves those who exercise faith in him, who are eagerly waiting. And that's not just something won and done in the past. That's something we do every day. We wait on our toes. We watch. We look. We exercise faith. We trust in his word. We cling to his promises. We, we, we find Jesus is the yes and amen to all that God has promised he would do. And as we wait on the Lord, we will find the words of lamentation to be true. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We are people who can so easily be aware of our sin, more aware of our sin than we can be aware of your grace towards us. May your word this evening or this afternoon from he, uh, from Psalm 130 and what we heard from Hebrews 9, may it make us a people who are more amazed and aware of your grace to us than we are of our sins. May we be aware of the plentiful redemption that is ours in Christ. And may we be a joyful people who rejoice in all that you have done for us. In Jesus' name we pray.